talking about process in writing is like talking about masturbation, where everybody does it and they all have their own special way of doing it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to know all the details about how somebody else does it. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean you want to share it either, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Welcome to Darken the Page, a podcast for lovers of writing and the creative process. And now, here's your host, Dave Buddha. Welcome to Darken the Page. Today's guest is Allison Moon. I'm super excited to have Allison on the show today because um, she is also a geek about the creative process and is someone who's thought a lot about it. You know, a lot of writers, I think, go through it, but they haven't really examined it for themselves in a way that they can talk about it. I find Allison is, has a lot of great little tips, a lot of things that she's learned along the way. Um, we're going to talk about Kickstarter, where she came up with the title for her first book and, and how that all came about. Talk about crowdfunding and self-publishing and erotica. And she's also a sex educator. So there's going to be some really good juicy conversation here. Make sure you check out the show notes. There's actually a lot of show notes for this. Um, and they're going to be at darkenthepage.com slash zero zero five. And so without further ado, here's the interview. I'm here with Allison Moon. I'm really happy to have Allison. I, I met her through uh, her partner, Reed Mahalko, and spent a wonderful day at Fruitopia with, uh, well, a few hours anyways with the two of them. Um, Allison is a, a writer, and she writes, um, I would say, let's say fiction, erotica. Uh, she's also a sex educator and also is a creativity geek and just a general geek about things, which is I really am excited about. And thanks for coming on the show, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about you as a writer. Um, sometimes that's a humongous question, and most of us <laughs> have been essentially writing our whole life. But maybe when you started seeing yourself as a writer, and even though that's a dangerous question sometimes, but well, what's this whole writing thing been about for you? That's actually a really great question. Uh, I have four books out now, and I wrote my first one, published my first one in 2011, uh, and it took me about two years to write and edit and get you know ready for publication. Uh, but up until that point, I had loved writing. I had uh, been very enthusiastically, you know, kind of an amateur around writing, but I had never given myself permission to actually treat it seriously. I was one of those people who had you know notebooks upon notebooks filled with ideas or you know mm -hmm. exchanges between characters that never got turned into anything lines from the beginning of a play that I never finished and and for a while I, I just kind of told myself a story that I was just you know uh, I was a dabbler and I wasn't very good at it and I didn't have the metal that was required to become a writer uh, and really what it was was me not giving myself permission to declare myself any sort of writer so I was constantly just kind of getting in my own way as a way of you know protecting myself from I suppose the the challenge of declaring myself that mm -hmm. um, and ultimately what ended up being my breakthrough was that um, I was having a conversation with my partner Reed who you mentioned uh, and we were talking about werewolves one day we were just kind of talking about werewolves vampires you know various you know monsters as you do <laughs> exactly <laughs> and I, I recounted to him this argument that I had gotten into with this guy uh you know I'm just going to charitably call him a douchebag but uh this guy that he told me that you know we were talking about the the genders of various uh 
of various monsters. And he's like, well, you would never write a female werewolf because who wants to read about hairy, aggressive women? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, misogyny aside, uh, the answer is me. I would like to read that book. So uh, we got into this really heated argument and I told Reed, I'm like, I was so frustrated by this conversation because this notion that, you know, women couldn't be aggressive and couldn't be feral and couldn't be bloodthirsty, mm-hmm. which to me was so ridiculous. And and I, we kind of started riffing on the idea of what a female werewolf would be. And basically the more and more we talked about it, the more it came out that I'm like, I think we're talking about my, my college lesbian experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're talking about like, you know, women who don't uh, see themselves as part of the, the hierarchical beauty standards or mm-hmm. who are outside of the male dominated communities who find love and sexuality within community with each other. And we were kind of listing all these things. And I'm like, that sounds like a pack of, of wolves. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more it was perfect. And, you know, it was kind of fun to talk about. But then Reed looks at me, he's like, that's a book. That's a book that you should write. And uh, it was a moment of like, it was a kind of a, a weirdly epiphanal moment for me because I, I had never had an idea that was so, so not only uh, uh, exciting to me but also a book, uh, an idea that I knew I was one of the few people who could actually create. You mm-hmm. know, it felt it felt like some sort of weird synchronicity between the idea and where I was in my life that that actually felt really inspiring, mm-hmm. and so I just started writing it, and I r- found myself keeping writing it. You know, I didn't get in my own way. I was mm-hmm. thrilled to actually start and, and be excited about revisiting these characters and developing this whole world in a way I never felt by any of the other, other projects I had started before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, ultimately it became this, this the, I mean, what was really the tipping point for me was the idea, but also knowing that I had to give myself permission because nobody else was going to do it for me. People could tell me, oh, this is a great idea, but nobody was going to give me permission to declare myself a writer. That was something that you have to do for yourself. And I had to do for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to kind of declare it powerfully and, and and believe that what I had to say was important enough, which I think is the hardest part for a lot of people. A lot mm-hmm. of, particularly people who are very aware of, you know, uh, cultural, like social justice, uh, you know, hierarchies of privilege and, and uh, you know, various things that I think are really liberal-minded and very thoughtful to mm-hmm. be consider- considerate of in the world. But I think for a lot of us, we get stymied because we think, well, I shouldn't speak because I'm taking away the voice of somebody else if I, ke- if I keep speaking, if mm-hmm. I take up that airtime, um, which is ultimately kind of a ridiculous thing. But I think a lot of us feel that way where, you know, it's this notion of like, I shouldn't, I don't have anything worthwhile to say. So I'll, I'm just going to shut up. Mm-hmm. And I think to be a writer, you actually have to say, no, what I have to say is worthwhile and important. And you have to have a certain amount of, you know, self-importance in order to be able to stick with it. <laughs> self-importance for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I can relate to that. Well, I, and I love this idea, too, of finding that one thing that, o- that only you can do. Uh, you know, maybe you Googled lesbian werewolves and, and there was just no one else doing it, you know. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised because um, – and I love how it matches up with your life. You know, that's kind of how I felt in a way with this podcast is I was like, well, nobody's – nobody's talking about creativity in a, in a long form with with different people i've i've heard questions on people's creative process and their daily routines i've heard that in in interviews and it's usually like you know one small chunk of it and it's always my favorite part and i said why why isn't anybody having these longer conversations about like how do people experience this this magical thing and 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 wanting to know more and so that that's really where this came from and and i thought okay well 
I just happen to be someone who loves talking about this. So maybe it's maybe this is the one I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that the creative process is fascinating. And it's one of those things that always ends up coming in a conversation. But some people are obviously really into it and some people shy away from it. Um, mm-hmm. Because I actually, I think I'm going to totally botch up a quote from a friend of mine at a, at a conference where he says, like, talking about process in writing is like talking about masturbation, where everybody does it and they all have their own special way of doing it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to know all the details about how somebody else does it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean you want to share it either, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or do it in front of at the room you know but exactly but that might be hot yeah mm. yeah that's like improv they're just they're like that they're kinky like that um that's true yeah well so speaking of doing it in front of the room and, and that kind of thing tell us about the erotica because that's something that i think a lot of people i think honestly i'll be just i'm gonna make an assumption here if, if anybody if people have been writing for any amount of time and they haven't considered writing some sort of uh, memoir about their about sex or something. I think that I think that they're missing out. But so tell me just a little bit about you know your relationship to erotica and and maybe what you know advice you would give someone who's kind of like on the edge of that cliff and looking about thinking about jumping. That's a really good question. I think that with erotica, in my experience, and you can talk to professional editors who might have very different ideas of it, but I kind of approach erotica from one of two angles. There's people who get really excited about situations, um, kind of like the porn, the porno thing of like, you know, here's your pizza, ma'am, or, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. where they like creating the scenarios and then having the characters fill in the blanks inside the scenarios, so to speak. Um, and then there's also sensational oriented. So it's like situational and sensational. And for me, I get really excited by the sensation aspect of things because as a writer, like I, I feel like the, the hardest thing and yet the most important thing is being able to communicate to a reader the subtle and internal experiences of what it is to be another human. Mm-hmm. And that to me is thrilling because where sex becomes so important is like I can put you know character A and character B in a hot scene and have them do things to each other's bodies and that can be fun to watch but where I get excited is trying to really get inside that person's body and how they're feeling when that person touches them in a certain way Mm -hmm. and that can reveal so much about character can reveal so much about about spirituality, about any, about you know, physicality in general, um, which is one of the reasons why writing my werewolf books was really fun because I, I gave myself permission to indulge in the sensation, which a lot of people who read the books and like them like the most is that I give a lot of time to talk about how one's body feels when it changes mm-hmm. and how certain sensations move through the body, scent, taste, touch, all these things that aren't usually given a lot of credence in fiction. Uh, it was really fun for me to spend some time in that world. So for mm-hmm. me, writing erotica is exciting because I want to try and communicate. Like, what, is it, what does it feel like when I have that lover touch me in that way and that sensation that happens in that space? Like That to me is where the, the sensational aspect of sex comes from mm-hmm. is is the all of the things the emotions the the nerve endings the the tension between bodies all working in concert uh and that's where i get really excited and that's also where it's fun for me to write because it's it gives me a lot of permission to indulge personally into what it feels like to have a certain kind of body in a certain kind of way Mm -hmm. what was your favorite part about the werewolf body or the werewolf bodies meeting um what was your favorite part to describe uh, scent, the sense mm. of smell. 
Uh, mm. Because again, like as a werewolf, like I'm playing with the idea that they have kind of canid senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, and for me again, like I think that when you talk about sex, the senses of scent and taste are some of the most erotic things to think about because mm-hmm. they're actually taking particles into your body. So like sound and sight are waves, right? You experience sight and you experience sound by by hearing waves or seeing like, you know, light waves. Mm-hmm. What I love about scent and taste is that those senses are actually inspired by actual particles of something else coming into your body. Mm. Uh, so for me, s- taste and scent are the sexiest se- uh, senses because I'm actually taking somebody else's body into my own yeah. uh, by smelling them and tasting them. And they're invasive senses. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're penetrated. <laughs> that is pretty hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was penetrated by your scent. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. And tell me, you know, I, I imagine that you know, you have a good chunk of your audience that, that are women, but there's probably a lot of men that are interested in this. I, I did go on your website and saw the um, the workshop that you do for teaching men about um, about a woman's vulva and, and driving the vulva. And I remember there was this workshop I went to. It was about three years ago at Burning Man. I went to, to Beaverton um, mm-hmm. and they you know they put on a workshop for women or for men but it was the it was the women teaching it and it was literally like you couldn't even get a seat i mean you couldn't even you were like i was in the back like peeking over the heads of some guys that you know were were eagerly uh watching i mean why do you think that that early i guess this is a two-part question so like tell me about your male readership and and you know why is this such a fascinating thing um, for men. Well, yeah, I think men are far- finally starting to, like, collectively, again, like, capital M men is such a tr- troubling th- thought. But, like, you know, <laughs> speaking about, like, I think men are starting to really uh, kind of upgrade their game around what it means to actually pleasure a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, what I find is so exciting is that I teach these workshops, and that, that workshop you're talking about actually was inspired by the workshop that I started at Beerton, I think, three years before that. Oh, nice. Uh, and I, the, the, my newest book is actually based on that workshop. So Girl Sex 101 is basically a workshop in a book of just pleasing a woman as a woman, specifically for anybody of any gender to read. Um, because I think that like men do want to know what it, what it is about lesbian sex that is so exciting for many women. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that, so I started teaching Girl Sex 101 thinking that it was going to be only queer women who came. And then I started finding that I was getting more and more straight men who were coming to this workshop because they want to learn what they didn't already know. Um, and I think what was so exciting about that is that I'm seeing men start to really start thinking about what they can do with their bodies that isn't cock focused, cock centric, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reasons, I think for a lot of guys, there's, if they're, you know, as they age, they're, you know, might have hydraulic issues. And so they're wondering about that. But they're also seeing a lot more cultural recognition of lesbian sex being a legitimate and very erotic sexual thing for women. Yeah. And they want to know what it is about women holding space for each other that is so special. And yeah. so, you know, I always talk about like hand sex and cunnilingus. Like hands are like the, the core sexual organ as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Uh, because no matter how many whiskeys you've had, your hands are not getting soft, you know? <laughs> They're going to be fine. And so for me, it's really, it's exciting to teach men to really start focusing, kind of like taking it back to basics. Like basically back to before you ever had 
you know, penis vagina sex Mm -hmm. as a young man, maybe like if you're using your fingers, like what about using your fingers was exciting for you and your partner? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes, you know, once you break the penis vagina barrier, you never use your fingers again with your partner or wife or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so being able to learn and kind of go back to that time when you used your hands a lot can be so exciting for so many people because it opens this door to sexuality that a lot of men kind of forgot about in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in terms of all the just the kind of natural mechanics of heteropaired couples where it's like, okay, like if a man's, you know, arousal is, you know, kind of a classic narrative structure of rising and then peaking and then quick denouement and, and anticlimax, uh, with women, you know, we have a much slower burn. And mm. so it, when men can learn to use their mouths and hands and toys to help prolong their own arousal cycle so that they can match up with their female partners more, mm-hmm. it creates such a such a beautiful uh, range of and dynamics of what what is possible between bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's thrilling to watch men kind of have those, realize that the, they had those tools all along. They just, you know, hadn't given them the credence that maybe they deserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just it's like taking it back to the the couch in high school, you know. Exactly, which again, like, is super exciting for some people. Uh, but yeah, when you're when you've gotten to a you know into a routine with your partner, your wife of thirty years or whatever, sometimes it's hard to to remember what that felt like. That excitement of kind of easing your fingers, you know, underneath the jeans uh, and creating some sexiness there. That see, just just you saying that creates so much sexiness. Easing your fingers <laughs> underneath the jeans. That's great. <laughs> I'm sure that was yeah. in one of the books. <laughs> My partner actually, uh, he bought me a pair of like uh, like knitted sweater kind of shorts for mm-hmm. Christmas. And they both, did, they did something to both of our brains because there was this like kind of gym shorts thing where you kind of ease them to the side and they yeah. have to be just loose enough to be able to fit your hand inside. But I'm like, both of us felt like we were in high school again. It was so hot. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, do you still live uh, at the same place I met you at, at Fruitopia? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So my question is, um, what is your writing routine like? And, and and again, this whenever I put structures onto this stuff, I'm always kind of like hesitant because I'm like, well, what if people you know don't consider themselves in a routine, which is useful for some people? But um, you know that 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 is a place that is a vibrant living area. <laughs> you know, so, so, and I remember when I came in that there was uh there was like a, there was a bunch of physics equations on the, uh, on the blackboard. And I asked Reed, I said, what, why, why are there physics? What are you guys doing in here? I mean, that's pretty advanced. He said, oh no, that's for, that's for, they were shooting a porno in here. So, um, you know, <laughs> and a physicist, an actual PhD physicist was in the porno and he wrote those equations. So those are real yeah. equations, right? Those are real equations. Oh yeah. You can super legit. Porn, yeah. Super legit. Super legit. <laughs> So how do you write and or do you write in this in this in this in this uh, I don't know what you call it uh, compound house um, (laughs) erotic mansion you know what how do you (laughs) how do you get anything done. You know, it's it's been challenging. Um, my routine has been a little bit shaken up because for the past eight months, I've actually had a you know vanilla day job again. Uh, which when you when you came by last time, I was I was working from home. My partner was working from home, uh, so we had a very interesting uh, structure. But for me, you know, I'm compulsive about writing. It's something that I do every day, um, and if I don't do it, 
it's kind of, I guess, like how exercise freaks feel, where like if they don't go on that run every day, they feel weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, if I don't write at least a tiny little bit every day, I feel weird. Um, so actually right now it's been very interesting because I've, I've taken some time off from writing since I've been working on this new book to get it published. So I'm trying to get just kind of, I'm going to let, let all of the, I don't know, like a, if my brain is a snow globe, I'm trying to let all of the snow kind of drift to the bottom before nice. I shake it up again. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, generally speaking, every day I want to write. Uh, and it has been interesting because my partner and I are in an open relationship. And since we both worked from home, you know, I got a really good set of, of noise-canceling headphones, you know. And, <laughs> right. and again, like, we have an open floor plan, too, which adds a lot, another layer. I mean, it was a live-work loft, so it's not like I can close the door to my bedroom and, and s- silence the entire apartment. It's actually right. pretty vibrant all the time. So... Yeah, I mean, and my office is kind of open in the space, and so is my partner's. So, yeah, noise-canceling headphones. Uh, sometimes I double up the earplugs with the noise-canceling headphones with music. Wow. Um, and I just kind of I just kind of zone into the work and get some done. I'm also a night owl, and my partner is a, is a morning person. So, for me, my best writing time is often like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, and so that allows me to have a little bit of quiet in the house where everything kind of settles around me and I can just zone into the work. You, you write better maybe during a full moon too as well, or? <laughs> you know, it's funny because like, I, I do really like that kind of like open the windows, let the night air stream in and it's just kind of drift, um, at least for the creative stage of writing. Obviously the editorial stage of writing usually requires morning coffee, you know, laser-like focus. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of the more kind of dreamy stuff, I, I love to write in the middle of the night when nobody else is a- awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is something really cool about about a computer that, that, that keeps you awake in an in a interesting state. You know, that can, mm-hmm. that can work to your advantage, of course, and some people, you know, if they're trying to get to sleep, not so good. But it is kind of, it's fun to, to, to be able to stay up. Almost really doesn't even matter how tired you are. But if you got mm-hmm. if you're at a computer, it will keep you awake, and 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 that's kind of fun. It's like it's like its own coffee. <laughs> totally, yeah. It's like probably doing horrible things to our brains, but hell, it gets our <laughs> writing done, doesn't it? That's all yeah. that matters, you know. <laughs> we, our brains are gonna die. The writing's gonna stay. So, totally. What, do you listen to any kind of music, any particular kind of music, when you when you put the headphones in? Oh yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty ardent about creating playlists for various books to generate mm. mood. Um, for my first two books, I have these really intricate playlists with a lot of kind of I don't know, like the Deers and Seeger Rose and some you know female led vocals and some warrior woman music and then some quiet lady music uh, just to kind of get myself into the into the range of the mood. Some stuff from college that I remember listening to a lot that you know kind of helps put me into that space of the college girl type thing. Nice. Um, for the, recently, I've been editing um, Girl Sex One on One, which is a nonfiction book, which requires me to have a lot more laser-like focus on just word by word because it's you know this high-end proofing stage of things. And it's really it's ready to come out soon, so mm-hmm. I need to really be on top of my game. So that for that, I've been listening to opera and classical without lyrics that I can recognize, uh, which helps me not get you know too engaged in the music, but instead for just sure. have some something soothing to keep me going while I edit. Nice. Do you have these playlists on Spotify or do you have them? Uh, how does this, how do you do this? Yeah, actually, I mean, Spotify came out while I was writing the second book and um, it was really exciting to me because I'm like, oh my God, I can have these playlists and all these things can happen on this. So right yeah. now I actually, 
I create, I think both the, my first and second book have playlists on Spotify. I don't know if you can even search for them, but nice. Lunatic Fringe and Hungry Ghost, which is really fun. Um, and then Girl Sex 101, I started creating a playlist for that because uh, that's really got a kind of road trip theme. Uh-huh. So it's a nonfiction book with a fiction kind of structure where there's a, each chapter starts with a story, an erotic story, mm-hmm. and then it moves into how to do the things that you just read those characters doing to each other. Um, and so for that, I kind of wanted to, and the whole story is this arc of these two ex-girlfriends that go on a road trip from Vancouver to San Diego. Nice. Uh, so I'm like, I wanted to like, what would, what would basically a lesbian road trip mixtape sound like? Which is really easy for me to come <laughs> up with because I'm a big fan of road trips. So yeah, I was just like putting all of the Indigo Girls and all of the, you know, Rilo Kylies and all that sounds of this playlist. And it was really, it's been really fun to listen to that and kind of put myself in the, the framework of cruising down the 101. Nice. Yeah, that music, yeah. that's so important. Um, could we find links to it I'd love to put the links on the show notes if people want to get to experience the music that inspired you Um, would that that work I don't know. I'll try because okay. I mean I, I think they're on Spotify. So maybe I'll send you what I can can send you, and then you can share with everyone. Okay. Yeah. Since this is recorded, I I, I couldn't like make a promise that well it'll be there, but I get a good mm-hmm. feeling that I'll be able to get the links there. So so totally. make sure people check the links. It'll be uh, darkenthepage dot com slash zero zero five, and I'll put links and and stuff to Allison's books. Awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. I I've been, you know, it's funny. I, so I've been playing music forever, and and in for whatever reason, I just got into using like ambient music to zone me out mm. because I don't know why. I guess, you know what it is? Honestly, I'm kind of a snobby musician in that I don't, I, I like music that's engaging and I'm, 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 I kind of resist the, the electronic, um, trancey scene when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. So I've never really been into that. And, but then I realized, oh my God, I can use this to, get me in the zone um or i could just use it to especially here at a co-working space this is where i'm working right now in in bali um there's people around and some headphones that are trancing me out is actually really nice for writing and and i think it's important what you said because i feel the same way about about having lyrics and either lyrics that you're not that you don't listen to or understand or um just no lyrics because it, it the lyrics w- no, the voice will engage your mind and you don't want that totally and i mean for i've always liked icelandic music a lot um so like Sigur Rós, amina who's a band that i really love um like and Bjork often and not i mean york <laughs> uh, because her range is so diverse i uh-huh. like i actually prefer slightly more of the ambient kind of trippy stuff would she be so considered s- icelandic music uh, I don't think so. I mean, okay. she's she's got, she's gotten such mainstream cred. I mean, obviously she's from Iceland, but yeah. and her, I think a lot of her music is obviously once you get to understand the, the range of Icelandic music, it's obviously very inspired by her homeland. Uh-huh. Um, but I I mean uh, the reason why I love Sigur Rós is because they sing in either Icelandic or gibberish, and oh, uh, so you can get the sense that somebody's singing lyrically, but ultimately you have no idea what they're singing, and that's really helpful. Uh, nice. And sometimes I actually find that there's this really interesting gestalt that happens where if I'm listening to him singing in this kind of gibberish language in the background, while I'm writing a scene, sometimes I'll hear him say things that can inspire the next scene without him actually having said those things. Oh, uh, yes. If that makes sense. It kind of is like, you know, staring at the clouds and seeing what, what happens. Um, totally. 
Yeah, that's happened a couple times. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Seeger Rose and Amina uh, for those reasons because they're it's it's just ambient enough to not o- dominate my brain, but yeah. it's also still uh, engaging and very musically uh, high level. Mm-hmm. So it's not just kind of like you know the same uh, beat over and over again. Yeah, mm, I like that. Yeah. Um, what are some other quirky things that you do uh, as a writer that people might not expect? Oh, interesting. Um, I really like wearing fingerless gloves when I <laughs> when I write. Even though I live in California, so I don't often need them. But uh, it actually something about it just feels. It feels like I'm in a Dickens novel or something. Something about it just feels a little, <laughs> little fun, you know. I think there's a I, there's a lot to be said for those little weird routines that people have where totally. it doesn't really matter what it is as long as it's like if you need your candle lit, that's your writing candle, whatever. Like do it. Yeah. Um, that's something I always teach people is like when they're getting into this place of like freaking themselves out, I'm like, just create that like little tiny routine that you need Mm -hmm. because your brain is going to resist so deeply the moment you put your ass in the chair, you know, it's, you're going to all of a sudden remember all the laundry you have to do or the, the dishes in the sink. And it becomes this game that you play with your brain to get to calm the F down, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if you can create whatever sort of routine you have to just kind of quiet all of the external voices as much as you can, uh, then do it. You know, it doesn't really matter what it is. If it's wearing a certain kind of sweater or having your like cup of hot water and lemon or whatever, mm-hmm. um, do it. Like, don't don't judge yourself for it because that stuff actually really does matter. And eventually, mm-hmm. maybe you can you'll be able to get by without it. I mean, after I got into the groove of writing, now I don't really need anything other than you know my piece of paper or my computer. Mm-hmm. But for a while, it was really helpful to have those little small things that just you know help kind of quiet the voices so you can focus. Yeah. What do you think about pairing? Maybe something that is kind of a guilty pleasure with writing. So I noticed like lately, marijuana like, and whiskey, <laughs> <laughs> or like like Bailey's and coffee or something. You know, like well, w- w- that's an interesting idea because I've been I've been thinking about that lately because my my wife is into. Um, yeah, like those kind of routines. And she's like, oh, I was so looking forward to to sitting down and writing and then, you know, smoking a joint and having, you know, a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever. And I thought about that and I said, oh, that's kind of that's kind of brilliant is to just something that's not, you know, you don't have to do like a couple lines of cocaine, but like something <laughs> that something that is, you know, relatively harmless that is maybe one of your guilty pleasures. And but pairing that up with the writing process. Um, I don't know. I've been thinking oh, about yeah, that lately. I mean- Sure. I mean, Hemingway famously said, write drunk, edit sober. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of saying, write stoned, edit caffeinated. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> same, same thing. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I absolutely think that, and again, like everybody's responsible or res- response to uh, substances is different, but I really, really like writing stoned. Um, nice. Or, you know, a couple glasses of wine in me or something. I mean, whatever that is that helps you kind of get into that expansive mind state, I think is really helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. That place where you can really just kind of let your brain float downstream, as they say. Um, when you're in the place of trying to come up with, when you're trying to channel emotion or sensation or fantasy, I mean, that's really where that comes in handy. Mm-hmm. And of course, the 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 hard slash essential part is then taking those amazing things you created and then and then honing them into something actually uh, readable. Um, mm-hmm. and that's something that, you know, it's funny cause my editor now knows 
like in my in my books, she's like, you were stoned when you wrote this part, weren't you? <laughs> uh, because like it tends to be a little bit more dreamy, expansive, and yeah. then her job is to help me kind of to to you know shred it into this great little like perfectly honed uh, section. But she can take those images, but ultimately it has to still come back to a place that's not so expansive. It become you can get lost in it. You know, it's yeah. that's where the craftsmanship really comes in handy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially for people who are just beginning, I absolutely encourage people to experiment with whatever substances they feel comfortable with to try and hit those certain brain states. I mean, and now for me, it's like again, it's with practice. Like I was, I wrote a lot of my first book really stoned um and then edited the crap out of it and probably even still needs needed even more editing than i gave it but mm-hmm. now i can i can hit those places without substances easier than i could before because now i know at least what it feels like to go there mm-hmm. so whether or not i need substances is actually is less important than knowing how to get to that that mind state that kind of state of kind of grace that i yeah. think a lot of those drafts come from mm-hmm yeah one one of the one of the things that I'd really love to do um, eventually with this audience is put on um, put on creative retreats and I would love to be in like some like some bunch of cabins in the woods somewhere and then have like one of the days be like experiment with substance and creativity day. Uh, that's just Hell so yeah. much fun. <laughs> Put me on your sign-up list. I'm in. Yeah. No, I told. I love it. And you know, I heard. I heard George Carlin say once that he would write his bits so totally sober, um, and then he would go back and and get stoned and 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 kind of like do like a little punch up. You know, make him hmm. a little edgier. Just make him a little more free. And and I I loved that too. That's really good. And again, like it's all. I mean. I feel like everybody who writes on any sort of regular basis or even probably works in a lot of different mediums on any regular basis, like you have to learn to have a really strong working relationship with your inner editor. And very few of us are blessed to be able to silence our inner editor whenever we want to. Ultimately, mm-hmm. you have to kind of f- come up with workarounds to tell that thing to shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some of us, that's where, I mean, honestly, I think that's probably where booze comes in so much when you talk about like famous writers, famous writing geniuses, uh-huh. is a lot of them were so crippled by uh, self-awareness and so crippled by uh, you know questioning their, themselves that ultimately they needed to drink in order to be able to just do the work, um, which I think is you know a tragedy in a lot of ways. But ultimately, where a lot of that stuff comes from is this like needing to figure out some way to be able to directly communicate with your subconscious as it comes up with the brilliance and ignore the type A inner editor that so many of us have. Mm -hmm. And whatever gets you there, you know? Like, I mean, there's a reason why so many great books were written on Benzedrine, you know? Like, it's because... What's Benzedrine? I don't know about Benzedrine. Speed. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so many great books were written on speed because, like, a lot of these people, guys mostly, you know, needed to silence everything and just just go just go without hearing anybody telling them that they shouldn't go um which is ultimately a really i mean it's again like it speaks to why so many geniuses have such short lifespans Mm -hmm. but also why you know some of these great books were written in you know a week and a half (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so what else would you say to someone who's trying to silence their inner editor and maybe doesn't have access, maybe lives in, in a place like Bali where getting drugs is a lot harder? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that it kind of comes 
back to, I mean, whatever you need to do to get into the flow state. Um, and again, like it really is often just relaxation, um, whatever that relaxation looks like. Uh, you know, so many sparks of great, so many great moments of, of you know, quote unquote genius come when you are not chasing them. When you're relaxed. Mm -hmm. So when you are on taking a long walk on the beach or in the shower, right, that kind of classic epiphany spot of the hot, warm shower, um, that's where a lot of great ideas happen because you're not trying to force them. Um, so I think that whatever you need to do to get yourself into that flow state, uh, if that is taking a long walk and bringing your tape recorder with you, mm -hmm. or if that's, you know, keeping a notebook by your bed so that as you're drifting off to sleep, which is another place where a lot of us are able to listen to our subconscious without our editor getting in the way. Like one of the things I've had to train myself to do, which is really hard because I love sleeping, is that when I'm drifting off and I can feel this great idea kind of churning in my head, mm -hmm. is forcing myself to wake up enough to grab the pen and notebook from the side of my bed and just jot it down. Uh -huh. um, because you're going to forget it in the morning, even if you think you're not, even if you convince yourself that you'll remember it, you're not. Um, so just kind of like nudging yourself out of sleep enough to be able to jot that stuff down. Um, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And that's some of my best ideas, little bits of dialogue, little kind of keystones for stories have come from that little dream state right before you drift mm -hmm. off. I kind of have the opposite problem. Like I reach over and I usually write it on my phone, which is by my bedside as my alarm mm -hmm. clock. And so I'll reach over and pull up Evernote or something and write it down and it'll either disturb my partner or it'll keep me more awake or then maybe I'll go on and start checking other things and and then I'll just have more ideas. It seems like once I give my brain permission, it's like, oh, we're doing the thinking now. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> and it's like all of a sudden, like more ideas, more ideas, more ideas. And it's like, wait, I'm trying to get to sleep here. So, oh, uh, totally. You know, that I definitely sometimes. know that feeling too. But I think for me, and there was this, I mean, this was easier when I was a freelancer, but actually now I do it even more of the like when my body is just not wanting to generate sleep and is actually really ready to generate ideas. I just, I mean, again, even though I love sleep and I need to, <laughs> I need to be very clear about this. I love sleeping. Mm -hmm. People make fun of me for how much I love sleeping, but like it's, it's that important to me. But what's more important to me is writing. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm in a place where it's like 3 a.m., I have to work the next morning, but I'm having great ideas, mm -hmm. I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to write, you know, and that's I'm right. going to write until my brain says, okay, we're done. Because that's just, that's a priority to me. That's my highest priority. Uh, so even if I get four hours of sleep that night, you know what, I'm still going to feel good about myself because I, I wrote some good stuff. Yeah. I don't think I've ever regretted that either. Right. You know. I, yeah. I always used to say you could sleep when you're dead, although I'm, again, I'm kind of like you in this way, but I do really enjoy sleeping now. And, and I realized I was also kind of burning the candle at both ends at some point in my life with sleep. So I'm, I'm definitely trying to prioritize it more these days, but well, I, won't, I won't let it go for a, a good idea. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So what would you say if I asked you what are, what are some of your fears as a writer? Oh, golly, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think in some ways I've, I've faced a lot of them because mm -hmm. I have books out in the world that people can review. And I, I do that thing that people always tell each other they shouldn't do, but everybody does anyway, which is I read my reviews, you know? So mm -hmm. I definitely will Google myself or I'll check out Goodreads and Amazon and see what people are thinking of my books. And it's definitely been, you know, these interesting ego blows um, in some ways when people just don't get what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately the biggest fear that I have isn't 
in being hated, it's being misunderstood uh, or misinterpreted, mm-hmm. which happens a lot. Um, and again, there's only so much you can do to you know, kind of guarantee that people will behave in a certain way when they read your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, with especially with my first book, because I definitely was doing some things that weren't conventionally wise with the way that I structured the book. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that some people got it, and those people who got it love it. Uh, and then some people who don't get it, they really, really hate what I'm doing, and they'll get frustrated and angry, and then they'll they'll take that frustration and anger to the internet um which is it's been fascinating to have those feelings of like wow like it's not that you had hated what i was doing it's that you didn't get it and weren't willing to try to get it mm-hmm. or maybe you were willing to try to get it but you just couldn't get it and that's where i feel the most uh, pain as a writer is just being deeply misunderstood with my intentions mm-hmm. um and especially like this is the first book even though i mean lesbian werewolf sounds very kind of cheeky and uh kind of uh, salacious but ultimately i mean my first book really examines multiple feminisms in conversation with one another uh mm-hmm. with queerness and and all these these kind of I mean, high-level things. Uh, I don't, and I never come to any conclusion about those things in the book. Uh, but people, when they read the first book, will kind of make sometimes make assumptions about what kind of person I am and what kind of feminism I believe in, like what I'm actually espousing to be the best form mm-hmm. from my book, even though I actually never make conclusions. Um, so that's been a hard thing for me because I like to control my message. I like to. I like to be understood, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a writer, there are just going to be people who won't understand. And that's something that I just have to learn how to be okay with, mm-hmm. really, truly. Uh, especially now, because I got these two books that are about sex coming out. I mean, my last one, Bad Dyke, has been out for a couple months now. Mm-hmm. And those are just true stories from my sex life. And I'm not afraid of being slut-shamed or being, you know, people kind of thinking that I am make bad choices. I'm actually more concerned about people misunderstanding why I'm sharing the stories in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been a really interesting <laughs> emotional challenge for me of like mm-hmm. sharing true things, mm-hmm. true, real, sacred things about my life um, and having kind of them up for public judgment is a fascinating exercise in, in trust. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's really beautiful because, you know, a lot of people would look at, at you and your body of work and say, well, that woman, she's a badass. Like she, she obviously doesn't care what people think because look at how polarizing she's willing to be. Mm. And, and yet, and I, and I, and I can relate to that too. I also enjoy being controversial and polarizing when I, when it's something I want to stand behind. And at the same time, you know, there's this dichotomy of, and we still really care what people think. And, and it's almost, it's almost ridiculous when we think about it because it's clear that we're setting out on this path of, of being loved and hated. You know, it's, it's, you know, when we look at what we're up to, it's, it's, it's not that we're playing it safe. I mean, there, there are other books you could have written besides, you know, Lunatic Fringe about lesbian werewolves that, that would have been less polarizing, let's face it. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and then Girl Sex 101, like, you know, you could have been like, you know, you could have gone with the teaching, um, you know, men about, about women through lesbian stuff that would have been more widely accepted maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but you, you obviously have chosen a path of more of a polarizing thing, which is why people love you and they hate (laughs) you, you know, because, because that's, I I always say like, you really can't have 
one without the other. They just come together. And, and I think, you know, based on, you know, it, look at just even looking at your Kickstarter and, and other things and, and your supporters are just really, really, really your supporters. They love you because you're willing to make, you know, 10% of the population really upset that you're, that you're, you know, talking about girl sex and not including any guys or that you're talking about lesbian werewolves and that, that that's weird and makes them uncomfortable. And, you know, I love that. And, and I, so I find it interesting that we, that this is the process almost of anybody who's willing to put themselves out there. And, and yet from the outside, it looks like sometimes that we just, you know, we're, we're total badasses and, and never have these <laughs> thoughts. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. That that really does mean a lot. And yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately that's what makes it worthwhile is when I have hear people who say like, you know, oh my God, you're a badass. Uh, because again, like I'm just writing projects that inspire me and I'm not really, I'm not very calculated about the whole thing because if I were, God knows, I'd probably be making more money, you know? Like mm-hmm. I'm just doing things that I, I feel really passionate and inspired by and hopefully other people will see that. And that's one of the things that I really like about Bad Dyke is that you know I'm seeing people relate to that book way way deeper than I was expecting. Nice. I'm seeing people say like this is the this is the queer memoir that I've been waiting for. Like things like in this kind of hyperbolic nice. way that I'm like oh my god because I, I again I was just writing fun stories to just kind of put them together. But I'm seeing that wow actually that like there are a lot of people like me in this world but not a lot of mainstream representation of mm-hmm. the kinds of sex lives that we have or kinds of relationships we like to form and so just having a book out there that allows people to be like yo queer polyamorous slut partnered to a queer polyamorous slut like Mm -hmm. what kind of things do they like to do like that's so nice to be able to share that with the world because it's not like we're drowning in those kinds of stories Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not saturated and if anything like most of the sex positive books out there right now aren't very sex positive at all Mm -hmm. um and instead, like, people who are so desperate to see themselves reflect on the page are actually finding themselves at a loss in some ways. And so stories that explore kink and queerness and sexual identity in a way that isn't shaming or intentionally just specifically salacious, um, I think people need that kind of stuff. And I am happy to be able to feel comfortable enough with my sexuality that I can share that without feeling shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you said about people wanting to see themselves reflected in the page. You know, I think that's something that we don't, at least I didn't consider uh, as a, a big, uh, a big win when it comes to really vulnerable memoirs. People want to, people are looking for themselves. Oh my God, is, is this weird thing that I have? Oh, there it is. Oh my God. I can't believe it. Somebody else is into that too. And, and I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when it comes to sexuality, but I mean, there's so little, truly diverse representation uh so being able to share what that story is for you whatever your story is it it's amazing how much that changes people's lives when they can realize especially again with the reach of a book like when people can see like if they don't have community wherever they are uh that they can see that there are people who are living the kind of life that they might want to live for themselves or at least just be able to have certain adventures that they want to be able to choose for themselves like mm-hmm. that stuff it it and i again i don't want to be hyperbolic but that stuff does actually save lives it really I does mean, especially yeah. when a queer when we're talking about queerness and gender like there are people who they just need to know that there's somebody else like them out in the world yeah um and with sex, it's like you can't, because of the shame in our society, you can't talk about it in the way that a lot of us need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. 
and so being able to see that these are you know people are sharing their their true stories that that stuff matters i think it's really interesting this is a little bit of a side note just about about you and less about writing too and i always found it really cool and interesting that you have this at least on the surface traditional looking relationship with a traditional looking man and then so much other stuff going on so it's it's people it's even harder for people to categorize you because <clears throat> it'd be easy let's say if you were just a lesbian and into, oh well she's a lesbian and this and then but you have oh but she's into this and and i love how your relationship with reed is is kind of throws people off probably um and 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 the vastness of your expression um it's really fun oh well, to see. yeah it throws me off. I mean, <laughs> it throws me off I, too. I, yeah, I, I was a le- I was a lesbian until I I met him. You know, and I was identifying fully as a lesbian. I didn't want to date men, and it was you know. But he just was special, and the fact that he's queer too. I mean, it's hilarious because again, like I I mean, I guess you know, I like to think that we do look kind of traditionally heterosexual on the outside, although. Most people read read me as gay when they see me alone, and mm-hmm. and he certainly doesn't represent like traditional patriarchal masculinity either. So, mm-hmm. I think that I, I think that we look probably way more mainstream than we actually do. But um, yeah, it is pretty fun to fuck with people's expectations uh, mm-hmm. uh, around like what people are supposed to be doing. And again, because both of us are so safe uh, in talking about our sex lives, it does allow for people to kind of get kind of blown away by the way that we do things and the way we have conversations and the fact that we're in an open relationship and we're constantly talking about like our other lovers and other things that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate that you see that as well. I enjoy it. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I just mentioned, you mentioned Kickstarter or maybe I mentioned Kickstarter. Um, and I tell me a little about your experience with that. Um, and maybe some successes and, and pros and cons of that from your experience. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think one of the exciting things about the Kickstarter process is that you can engage with people about where you are in the creative process. Mm-hmm. And you can t- you can give them updates and insider information to what's going on with the actual production of, in my case, the book, um, which I think people get really excited about because they want to see what's going on. They want to know where there's problems. And again, for me, like having to, to email those people and say, like, hey, we're delayed because the printer's having some problems. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get your book to you in another two months. Like, that's a real challenge for me on some ways around my ego, you know, mm-hmm. around project management. But at the same time, like, it's really, I think it's quite nice to have that relationship developed with people mm-hmm. where I'm not, I'm not hiding anything from them. I'm not trying to convince them that something's not true when it's not. Like, I'm really just having these honest conversations with, with a lot of people that I've never met who have invested money in me. And I'm telling them, like, this is what what's going on this is what you can expect this is what i need to do to feel safe and this is what you can do and like let me know if you have any questions and like having that open exchange between creator and consumer is actually really thrilling to me mm-hmm. um i get excited by the notion of where creativity and the relationship between artists and consumers going right now with the way the internet's working mm-hmm. um i know there's a lot of bad news out there but i think there's a lot of really inspiring exciting news too when it comes to the notion of what it means to patronize an artist and to really be in a relationship with the artist and be able to have that open channel of communication is, mm-hmm. I think, really exciting and thrilling. Yeah. I think Reed could update his difficult conversation formula to, to fit artists and patrons, too. That'd be good. <laughs> I have something to tell you. I'm afraid if I tell you, you're going to want to take your money you're back. Take your money and run. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It's kind of true, though. I mean, it definitely had to happen. I mean, I've, and again, like, I think, again, with people in that 
space, I think they're kind of used to seeing those things happen, knowing that there are delays, knowing that there are challenges, knowing that you might have hiccups down the road. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I mean, it is like relationships. It's when you clam up and go silent that people start to really worry. Yeah. It's when you're open and communicative, even when the news isn't good, that mm -hmm. people calm down a little bit and they feel safer. Um, and so that's been something that I definitely used with my relationship stuff to translate into working with people from Kickstarter is like saying like, hey, I am upset by this thing too, but I want to let you know where we're going with this. And don't worry, we're still going to get you your book. It's just going to be later than I expected. And I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and being able to have that kind of conversation is hard, but necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I like what you said too about people being interested in the process. And I think a lot of times we, we underestimate how many apprentices are in our audience and I noticed the same thing with music um, when I was playing music and driving around the country and having a fan base and it's like it's my biggest fans were people who were like five years behind me you know mm -hmm. doing like wanting to do the same thing and it made sense because of course I was into people that were five years ahead of me and 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 I and so in that case of course they want to be in on the process that's that's like one of the wins actually to see to see what you're going through you know for uh, like let's say a writer who's like 10 years younger than you who is like man i'd love to do this 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 and things that you've accomplished already that's a huge win for them oh totally and i think that the, the one thing that i'm very excited about with the, the kind of disruption of publishing that's been happening lately is kind of removing the ivory tower situation from publishing. Uh, I think that in music that already happened because of the way the internet affected artists who were able to distribute their work without a label. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's happened with filmmakers with the same thing kind of like with YouTube being able to make a name for yourself without having to go through the studio system. These This breakdown of kind of the monoliths, the, the ivory towers, have happened in almost every mainstream form of art there is except for publishing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just starting to happen with publishing where people are actually starting to finally just trust creators and and get excited about what's happening behind the scenes. Because for a long time, like, you know, publishing was this thing where you only put out these perfectly polished, perfectly packaged items. Mm -hmm. um, and now people are doing these, like, you know, monthly postings or, you know, Patreons where you're putting up a draft every week. Um, I mean, with Lunatic Fringe, my first novel, it's definitely not my best novel. And I will probably be humiliated by it in another five years, mm -hmm. right? But I put it out because I wanted to participate in this grand experiment of deconstructing the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I went there with it. But and it's not perfect, and and I don't want it to be perfect because I want readers to see an evolution of talent and skill set, because I want people to know that writers aren't these people deigned by God to achieve some greatness. They're just human beings. Well, hey, speak who for yourself, okay, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like they're they're people who who committed themselves to a craft, and that's what I want people to know because I think that this kind of uh, this ghettoization of artists as some sort of special class is really destructive to art in general. Mm -hmm. Because again, like you're saying, like it's these people who are five years behind us who are paying attention because they want to someday rise to the same level we're at and we want to rise to the level of somebody who's five years ahead of us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really how this works and you have to kind of decolonize that notion 
of who gets to be a, a, a successful artist in this world in order to be able to create the kind of cre- things you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really valuable to see that behind the scenes process, to see the, oh my God, this book is riddled with typos, I have to fix them problem. Yeah. Um, because these, yeah, these, you know, books do not come out of our heads fully formed like Athena from Zeus, you know, mm-hmm. like they require work. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So my last question is if you could go back, um, let's say three years, maybe to that dinner conversation with, with Reed about female werewolves, um, mm-hmm. and you could slip yourself a note that you would have seen right after that conversation, and it would have been, you know, some words of encouragement or maybe what you've learned from from the last three or four years of having gone through this. Um, what would that what would, what would that note say? Oh, gosh. You know, honestly, I, I'm I'm the kind of person who doesn't tend to worry too much. So I think I'd probably just tell myself that, that I was on the right track, um, that I'm, I'm very happy with where my career is and where I am personally right now. And I wouldn't change a thing. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Allison. This is like such a pleasure, and I love how we wove in the sex ed stuff and and the relationship <laughs> stuff. It's totally this perfect, and um, yeah, I really just appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. It was such a delight to talk about this stuff. I I get really geeky about this kind of thing, so it's fun to have a a person to talk to about it. Yeah. So out of the multitudes of things that you're up to and ways that people can get involved or support you um what's a good one-stop shop for you or what's what's a good way to to just hit you up or to see what you're up to yeah i mean right now i pretty much live on girlsex101.com uh or on twitter at the allison moon with two l's Mm -hmm. um either one of those places people can find me um and you know a lot of my projects will be kind of devoted in that direction for a little while and then uh and people can always email me uh, at info at girlsex101.com. I, I welcome people reaching out. Awesome. And I, and I totally encourage anybody that's in the area or able to attend one of your workshops, too, because I just think, um, I mean, both you and Reed, I just think are really, really gifted teachers. And so I think that's one of those things that you being so good at other things, people might not even realize. So definitely encourage <laughs> anybody to check that out if they're in town. I think Beaverton could have used your assistance because the, the workshop I went to at Burning Man was all right. You know, it was yeah. like it was a lot of hype, but I, I feel like there was <laughs> there was not as much meat there, you know. Oh, yeah. My, my workshops have a lot of meat. <laughs> yeah, a lot of meat. <laughs> well, thanks again. And everybody, make sure you go to the show notes, which will be up at uh, darkenthepage.com slash 005 for all the stuff we talked about today because we had a lot of nice links and, and hopefully those Spotify playlists, too. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Dave.